Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. Greetings from Carlisle, Pennsylvania and the U.S. Army War College. You're listening to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, professor of strategy at the War College and the editor-in-chief here at War Room. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, So I'm very happy to be back in our recording studio today to talk about Chinese grand strategy and specifically the Belt and Road Initiative. And I'm here with Sarwar Kashmiri, who is Applied Research Fellow at the Peace and War Center at Norwich University and also a fellow at the Foreign Policy Association. He is a podcast veteran uh, who has posted with the Carnegie Corporation of New York's China-focused podcast, and he has a background in international business. He is a noted expert on the international economy, geopolitics, and strategy. So, Sarwar, welcome to War Room. Jackie, it's a pleasure to be here again. I always learn so much when I come here and go back. That's the goal of the War College, right, is to learn from each other and from the students and faculty and the experts that we have. It's a, it's a great place to come together and, and learn new things. And you do it so well. Good. I'm, I'm very glad <laughs> to hear it. Um, we hear a lot about China today. Um, and if I think about China today as I understand it, and I think about China about 40 years ago, uh, they feel like very different places. So I wonder if you might start us off today by helping us understand how we account for China's uh, rapid change in those really just two generations. That's a great question because, uh, in fact, there has never been anything like that in recorded history. Uh, As an example, in the last three uh, decades, uh, China has uh, moved 790 million people from abject poverty to lower middle class. Right. It has taken what used to be a very, uh, very uh, stuck-in-the-mud uh, communist socialist system, uh, autocratic, of course, uh, and flipped it on its head into a model that uh, we've not seen before, uh, i.e. a raw capitalist side and then uh, a socialist side and then, of course, the autocratic government. And and so China has emerged from nowhere now to become the richest country in the world in mm-hmm. three decades. You know, so uh, uh, so there we are with China, and it is now uh, in a situation where it continues to grow. Mm-hmm. So it has the largest gross domestic product in the world today. The per capita, meaning per person, gross domestic product is fairly small, but it is well on its way rise, and the trajectory is all pointing up. So China has become, in the space of a few years, a rich country. Uh, it's a country that has now developed a military potential to safeguard its coastline. And with the Belt and Road Initiative, which I think uh, uh, we, we'll talk about in a moment, it is about to become the most influential country in the world. Mm-hmm. So that's its grand strategy. Yeah. And if I may just set the stage at this point and say, what is the American grand strategy? Right. So I think we'll come we'll come back to that particular question, and I'll ask our listeners to keep that in mind as as we talk. Um, I'm struck really by the rapidity with which this has happened. So that has all been 
uh, and I'll reveal my age here, that it's all been within my lifetime, um, which is an extraordinary sort of thing to, to think about how you take a country of that size uh, with its geographic location and all sorts of things uh, and that, that sort of turnaround. So you mentioned basically three, um, we might call them three pillars or three sort of areas of, right. of focus, ec- rapid economic growth and infrastructure development, uh, military development and the development of military capacity, and specifically, like you said, protecting its coastline. That's exactly. where it's, it's most vulnerable. And then finally, the integration globally with the Belt and Road Initiative. So if we focus in on that last piece, um, the Belt and Road Initiative, which has gone by a couple of other names, and, and maybe you can fill us in on, on that as well. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, that began in just 2013. So this is a pretty recent um addition to Chinese grand strategy. Uh, can you give us the, the brief rundown of the history of the BRI? Sure. Uh, and, and the Belt and Road Initiative, which has also been called One Belt, One Road, and various other names till, till it got all officially compressed into BRI or the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, you're absolutely correct, began in 2013, uh, began in quotation marks because that's when uh, President Xi Jinping announced it uh, uh, to the world. Uh, and, and it very quickly absorbed previous pieces. Uh, and what the Belt and Road Initiative is, uh, is, uh, is, uh, chi- uh, is one leg of Chinese strategy, the last leg, as I uh, argue, uh, which attempts to connect China to over 100 countries in Central Asia, in Europe, in Africa, uh, and to connect the countries to one another, and to improve the standard of living of these countries by uh, providing them with infrastructure, ports, land ports, seaports, airports, bridges, tunnel, uh, and all of the wherewithal which, which China has used to increase its own standard of living from the abysmal level that it was at uh, some decades ago. So one, I hate to keep using the word, but there has never been anything like it in recorded uh, history uh, where, uh, where a country has put a trillion dollars, in this case China has put a trillion dollars aside, to help in jump-starting all these infrastructure projects around the country. And just as a small example, it, uh, in, the, in, in three years, uh, China was already doing roughly $3 trillion worth of business with these countries that it is working in. And it is today doing roughly uh, twice that amount. So this is starting to become a very, very successful initiative on the Chinese side. And if I might just throw out one more uh, data point uh, for your listeners. So if you take 120 countries as a working number of the countries that it's working with in, in this Belt and Road Initiative, the, the alliances that will come out of this as these countries raise their standard of living, in my opinion, are going to be much more long-lasting and effective 
than military alliances. And so even if a third of the countries from this list become close allies of China because of the standard of living, other word that China's doing, they will exceed by far the alliances that any other country in the world has and be much more effective, in my opinion, because they're addressing needs within the country, they're addressing standard of living in the country, they're creating a middle class, as opposed to simple military alliances, which mm-hmm. really don't do that much for a country's population. Maybe the people, the people therein. Um, so this brings up, I think, to me, an interesting question. The the BRI is quite diverse and and quite large. If you're talking about relations with between 100, you know, 70 and 120 countries uh, in the in the world with different uh, democratic and political institutions, different economic systems, different populations, different needs, different you know natural resources, all of that. The diversity is pretty astounding. So how does how does China manage the relationships, um, the 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 sheer number of relationships that are required to pull this off? That's a really really interesting question because uh, I think even they are taken aback at all the things that they have to keep uh, track of and connected to as they go through this uh, as they go through this process. I think what China is doing is feeling its way through it. So when China was opened up by its then premier uh, to the capitalist world, uh, there was one saying that still uh, stands and that people often quote, which is, he told them to cross the stream by feeling the stones so that always keep the other shore in mind. But if you get cut as you take a step, change direction, but not Mm. where you're going to end. And I think China's learning as it goes. It knows where it wants to be, but it's learning because nothing like this has ever been attempted before, right? So so I'll give you two examples. One uh, was uh, the real blowback when it was using nothing but Chinese engineers to build infrastructure in Africa and to some extent in the Middle East. Uh, and and so it's corrected that in Ch- in Africa now there is actually an agreement that is signed before China starts work, which which specifies how many African engineers mm-hmm. and so on will be used. So that's one. Two, and that the second example I want to give is work in progress. Uh, is the the uh, the global media reporting on the Muslims in in uh, in China that are being put in education camps, what China calls education camps, what others call retraining camps. Uh, well, this is a real issue because most of Central Asia, where much of uh, the BRI infrastructure is going in, these are Muslim majority countries. Pakistan, which has the China-Pakistan economic corridor. Uh, which is a marquee project as a Muslim country, and so already there's been uh, there's been some violence against uh, Chinese engineers as the blowback, and so China's learning how to deal with this. Now all of a sudden it's exposed to cultures in 120 countries. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the issues that are coming up, and I think China's dealing with it by changing slowly its own strategy, and uh, there's no template for this because it's not been done before. As I keep repeating myself here, uh, but that's what I believe China's doing. It's learning as it goes along. So reacting to and responding to, adapting uh, as it goes. And so I would imagine then that the programs in different countries look look different to adapt to those different 
uh, settings and very much so. Problems. Very much so. If we think about American responses to the to the Belt and Road Initiative um, in the last you know five to seven years when it's been in existence, what has been the predominant uh, response from American policymakers and sort of foreign policy elites? I think the response has been largely denial, ineffectual, and incorrect. Okay. Uh, to give you an idea, uh, first of all, China has invested, uh, put aside a trillion U.S. dollars to jumpstart these projects. The Asian Infrastructure Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the World Bank, all estimate that for infrastructure at the volume and level that China wants to build in these countries, it'll take roughly three trillion, three and a half trillion dollars a year for 10 years to do. Wow. So China's, uh, you know, put aside a trillion dollars. So where is this money going to come from? Mm -hmm. This money is uh, now coming from all of the top uh, uh, banks, investment groups, and so on, who are trying to fill in the gaps, right? So so that's one example of uh, how China is influencing countries, how China is pulling in uh, in, in commercial assets to make uh, okay. this run. The American response has been largely, oh, it's a debt trap based on what I consider to be rather weak, uh, uh, rather weak uh, experience in understanding what China is mm -hmm. doing. And this is this is the idea that China is going to extend credit to poor poorer countries exactly. to the rate that which they there's no way they can pay it back and then China will repossess basically repossess repossess the, the assets that they are trying to, okay. uh, that they are creating there. And right? this comes from a specific case in in Sri Lanka is it that It comes is that right? it began in a specific case in Sri Lanka at the port of Hambantota. Uh, and has extended from there to uh, to other countries, and uh, I've looked at the contract that uh, that the uh, Sri Lankan government signed with China to make this port of Hambantota. Uh, it was in the province of the then prime minister, so there were built-in mm -hmm. reasons for them to uh, to do this, right? And yes, it is true that uh, Sri Lanka had a hard time. Uh, making the payments, but that was already taken into account in the original contract, and and what would then happen, which was that the port would uh, become uh, there be transformed into a lease of 99 years, which has which is what has happened right. with China, right? And in fact, China is doing other projects now. They're investing almost 600 million dollars into marketing this port and making it better because it's right on the uh, Indian Ocean and, and in a very strategic position. Uh, so the response from the American side has been, I think, uh, uh, without too much basis. And the reaction has been basically that, gee, we don't have the money to do this, so how can we discredit what China's doing? Mm -hmm. So that's one answer I would give. The other, I think, it, is that it's doubly insulting for that to be policy uh, of the American elite and uh, and think tanks and so on, because what you're telling these countries is, hey, you don't have the knowledge to make up a balance sheet. You don't have a knowledge, you, uh, you don't understand right. accounting as much as Western countries do, right? So uh, Venice is another example. But you're and being tricked or you're being duped. You're being tricked, that, that you're being duped. probably doesn't play well. 
no, in a lot of no, places. No, it does not. Uh, and that's why it hasn't worked yeah. and is not going to work. The amount of money that has been appropriated by Congress to build infrastructure that, uh, that the U.S. is now touting is minuscule, mm-hmm. and it'll never even catch up. I'll give you just one more example, Venice. Uh, which uh, is one of the ports as China is interested in working in, together with uh, Genoa and Trieste on the Adriatic coast. Now, to talk about Venice as being duped, you know, is uh, ridiculous because that's where accounting was invented. Double entry <laughs> accounting was invested, right. you know, in Venice when it was doing business around the world. So I think that this is very bad strategy. It doesn't help America, and it creates a worse image of America as a, mm-hmm. as an all talk and do nothing country. Even and especially, it seems that if we understand that China is modifying how it's working and learning lessons from 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 these different projects Precisely. overall uh, overall that something that may have been true in one case may not be true it, it may not follow exactly. in, in the rest of the exactly. in the rest of the world totally agree with you um, at the same time as you said never been attempted before on this scale um, almost certainly there are challenges that are going to confront china uh, as it tries to realize this pretty incredible vision that it has. Yes. Um, and you talk about some of these in your in your book. Um, can you talk about some of the challenges that you see and, and the potential uh, things that could be obstacles for China as they try to, to get this done? Indeed. And I think uh, uh, it's just starting to hit China that the cultural issues are really important. How is China... Uh, going to connect to the cultures of 120 to 160 countries, right? From uh, the different uh, ethnicities, the different languages, the different religions, uh, the different beliefs, uh, the different stages of development. This is a huge issue that it it will have to it will have to deal with. Then there's a question of uh, uh, the financial nature of the economy in China. Right. So uh, depending on uh, which expert you talk to, uh, they'll tell you that the internal lending practices of China, the number of banks that are starting to get into trouble in China, that this will continue to be a big issue. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, lately, of course, this, uh, this uh, virus that is spreading like crazy, although it's too early to, to say what that would mean, uh, but clearly it has the potential to do some real damage to the Belt and Road Initiative right. because the focus will have to be for, from uh, from stopping what appears to be a very rapid uh, distribution right. of what this could, virus. It could easily look like it could be a pandemic. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. So what is that? what is that going to do? Uh, and then just the question of uh, uh, hubris because, uh, and I mean this in a... Uh, not necessarily in a negative way, but how is China going to deal with this growing influence and its rise as a superpower Mm -hmm. with the other superpower, which is the United States, right? So these are all issues which have yet to flesh out and that they will have to deal with. And changing uh, political environments in both China and the United States, uh, like the relationship between domestic policy and foreign policy, uh, the domestic economy, all of these are, are quite complicated. I yes, imagine. they are. Yes, they are. Uh, and with both America and China changing rapidly in that context, mm-hmm. you know, how is this going to work out? How will they deal with it? Both right. sides now deal with it. 
I think this is an interesting question to me. Um, we talk a lot about how the United States views China, whether it is a competitor or a potential uh, partner or cooperator or adversary. Uh, is there a similar discussion going on in China about how they view the U.S.? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, it is. Uh, they've, uh, uh, from people I talk to, that they have really studied the national security strategy and they really listened to uh, the speeches by uh, by by some of the uh, leaders in the administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think. Uh, and they were startled also, by the way, at the European Union's more or less now mimicking the American national strategy message, hmm. meaning strategic competitor, right. uh, you know, and, and, and so on. Uh, and they're, they're trying to figure out how to, how to deal with it. Uh, I happen to think this is a very dangerous road to go down on for everybody, China, mm-hmm. the U.S., and others. Uh, so uh, uh, it's a work in progress. Uh, but more than anything else, I'd like to see us, which is why I was very interested in talking to you, develop a grand strategy that China now has. And, and, and I don't believe the U.S. Mm. does. Uh, I think that's a real uh, point that needs to be ticked off on the checklist. Yeah, so, if, so in China's, in your view, China's grand strategy has these sort of th- these three um, key aspects of economic growth, military capacity, and the BRI and into like global integration. Yes. In some ways. Uh, and the United States in, in your, in, in your view, doesn't have the same, um, strategic vision of, of where it wants to, where it wants to Absolutely. Go. And if I might just very quickly build the, the I think the Chinese, uh, uh, grand strategy, we didn't all come out of a template. It developed mm-hmm. over time, announced, uh, uh, consists of three legs. The first one was for China to get rich, which it has. The second one was to make its coastline inviolable, which it also has been successful. Uh, uh, my research, I believe, in doing. And what that means is we, we the U.S. projects its force overseas, especially in the Pacific, through these uh, uh, nuclear-powered right. carrier attack groups. Well, now, you know, it's very difficult, if not risky, for them to operate in times of conflict within a 1,000 kilometers of the Chinese coast, mm-hmm. which means basically that America's hegemony in the Pacific has ended. Right? right. If China is, is essentially off-limits to America's Off-limits Navy. to American in times of conflict, it would be terrible to to, uh, to go in there. Uh, right. So now the third leg is this Belt and Road Initiative. Having secured its coastline, having become the richest country in the world by GDP, China is now putting together the tools that will secure its natural resources, develop uh, 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 other alternatives to getting all its commerce and energy from the Malacca Strait, which, as you know, is a very narrow passageway through which choke point through which half of the world's tonnage passes. And the importance of it, I'm reminded by by the U.S. Navy saying six, uh, 60, 70, 80, 60% of the world is water, 70% of the population lives within 200 kilometers of uh, water, and 80% of the world's commerce travels through water. So those are the things China's doing as a grand strategy, mm-hmm. and I will throw on the table uh, the question of does America even have a grand right. strategy? When in the U.S. strategic documents, like we and we've said this, the national security strategy, uh, the national defense strategy, and on down, uh, China is recognized as 
maybe the central um, character in the in the drama uh, of American grand strategy. Uh, and it's been characterized in different ways right now as a strategic competitor. And in our documents, we see a lot of talk about a return to great power competition as the key thing uh, for American military and national security professionals to focus on. And if that's, if that's the case, if China is both a, a competitor and we think great power competition is the, is the future, then that gives you some sense of how the United States is thinking about China. Exactly. But very little in how the United States is responding to China on a sort of day-to-day um, level and, and thinking about it strategically. What would you imagine, um, if you could advise senior U.S. policymakers and officials on what you think a, a prudent strategy towards China looks like, what might it, what might it be? Well, the first thing I would advise is uh, uh, that 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 the U.S. should we should the U.S. should go see a DNA specialist <laughs> and figure out how are we going to get rid of that piece of the American DNA which says that we are all powerful all over the world and accept the fact accept the fact that the U.S. is no longer the hegemon in Asia and that we will continue to lose ground on that. And the world of the future is going to have two powers, Mm -hmm. whether we like it or not. I mean, this whole idea of containment is, to me, ridiculous as a former businessman. How do you contain a country that is the biggest automobile market, the aviation market, the cell phone market, the luxury goods market? I mean, it's not possible. Historically, there's been, you know, Holland, the 16th century, Britain, the United States after the Second World War, and now it's China's turn. So that's happened. So get the DNA fixed and accept the fact that, that we'll have two superpowers. Secondly, learn how to work with it. I mean, most people don't know it, but most of the uh, rail cars in Boston now are being constructed mm-hmm. in China and shipped to Boston to be assembled, right? There are at least two ports that are owned by, run by a company on American soil that, that's owned by a Chinese company, uh, right? So uh, most of the big asset management firms in New York are raising huge funds to build American infrastructure, which you know uh, is crumbling. I mean, a third of our right. infrastructure is... Uh, so, so we need to figure out how to work with China in a constructive way. Mm-hmm. And I think that begins by understanding that we're no longer the hegemon uh, of the world. So needing to think about the broad geopolitical environment, the, the place of the United States and China as states, uh, but it also sounds like thinking very carefully about the relationship between the capitalist, econ- essentially capitalist economies of the United States and China, which are, are, at least in the United States, for sure not all state oriented, right? There are lots of private interest, corporate exactly. interests uh, at play as well, and that has to factor right. in. Absolutely. Um, and if I might just throw in a last point, as these 120, 160 countries increase their standard of living, and uh, aren't there people going to ask this question, Jackie, that, uh, uh, gee, we didn't have money some years ago to send our kids to school, to mm-hmm. take a holiday, to have a middle class living. Now we have all of that. And it's due to Chinese money and it's money due and to investment. Chinese money. And would we sacrifice to get a free press and a free unrigged election mm-hmm. and give up what we've gained? 
Yeah, I think to me, this is maybe the most interesting question. And perhaps we should have started with this instead of ending with it. Um, But this the relationship between uh, economic prosperity and democratic governance, uh, which has been linked in uh, sort of liberal theory for a very long time. Uh, But in China and in other places, we see them maybe maybe diverging. Uh, and so this relationship between governance and economic prosperity, I think, is a really interesting one and certainly one that the United States is going to have to have to confront as well. Yes, um, I, I totally agree. And and uh, and we have to face up to that, too. Right. I mean, we're accusing China right now of uh, taking these Muslims, Uyghurs and putting them in camps. Uh, we're uh, rightly accusing them of uh, spying on people to an extent that we haven't seen mm-hmm. before. But we only have to take a few steps uh, westward or eastward, I forgot my geography, and look at the United Arab Emirates, right? Virtually every person in the United Arab Emirates is spied on. Uh, they have files on everybody. They have recognition technology, right? So it's not that we're... And, uh, we haven't made allies of people mm-hmm. who are doing very nasty things. Right. And so... It well, and even in the United States, there are, are news stories all the time about, right, facial recognition software and real-time tracking that right? of people. And uh, so these are these are global concerns. Yes. Uh, not only concerns within auto- autocratic societies, I think. Yes. Um, so I'm going to wrap up here. Uh, our time has gone rather rather quickly, uh, but I'd like to thank uh, Sarwar Kashmiri uh, for joining us at the War Room. Uh, he is the author of a recent book, China's Grand Strategy, Weaving a New Silk Road to Global Premacy, and that's with Prager University Press. Uh, so again, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope your visit to the, to the War College is a, is a lovely one. Well, thank you for making this time. The War College is an extraordinary institution, and and the subject that you're uh, teaching, uh, grand strategy, strategy, to me is the most important thing we have to deal with now. So my pleasure. Thank you for making time. Thank you. This is Jackie Witt signing off for War Room. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.